So here we are. My name is Schaefer Spires. I'm the medical director for Dayson, and we are here for our Dayson Digest. Uh, we were recording on February 23rd. This will come out on February 25th. Uh, today we have two fantastic guests, which I am uh, excited to meet and talk with. Dr. Katie Olney and uh, Dr. Katie Wallace from University of Kentucky Healthcare in Lexington, Kentucky. Great land of horse farms and bourbon and the <laughs> uh, University of Kentucky basketball team. Um, they are here to talk about their recent publication, which, by the way, guys, congratulations. This is, as far as I could tell, one of the first publications to come out that actually compares uh, or, or a reporting about uh, comparing uh, these two methods for AUC monitoring for vancomycin. The title is Comparison of Bayesian-Derived First-Order Analytic Equations for Calculation of Vancomycin Area Under the Curve. This is of pertinent timing, in my opinion. Uh, I know a lot of people thought about implementing vancomycin AUC monitoring when the uh, guidelines had just adjust, were uh, adjusted in what, early 2020, and then COVID kind of took over and everyone's mm -hmm. resources got shifted towards COVID therapeutics and, uh, and uh, AUC monitoring kind of put it back on the, on the back burner. And now I think as COVID cases go down, we're starting to kind of come back in the real world and look at uh, other interventions that are non-COVID, thankfully. And so this is going to come on the radar for a lot of programs and one of the first and biggest questions is, should we do it? And then how do we do it? And I think yeah. you guys uh, add yeah. uh, to the literature here. W would one of you guys be able to maybe summarize your, your, your article and, and then I can ask questions? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess kind of to start off with how we even began down this path. Um, UK did transition over to two-level vancomycin AC monitoring actually in the fall of 2017. So that is partially how we have this very robust data set that we were able to work with. And within our institution, we calculate AUC based off of first-order equations using two vancomycin levels drawn at steady state. So with the release of the 2020 IDSA, vancomycin therapeutic drug monitoring guidelines, they made the recommendation to target an AUC of 400 to 600, but they don't differentiate very strongly between use of Bayesian versus uh, first order equations, although they do give some preference to Bayesian. So it did bring up this question for us, which was, is there a difference? If there is a difference, what is it? And are they equivalent essentially? Um, so honestly, our objective was really just to compare calculated vancomycin AUC, and that would be using our first order equations like we would typically use within our institution, and then compare that to both one and two drug concentration Bayesian estimations. And so this was a single center retrospective cohort study, and we included a total of 978 patients at the end of the day. Um, and these patients were all hospitalized and receiving IV vancomycin between 2017 and 2019. And so they were included if they received at least 72 hours of vanc, and they had two uh, serum drug concentrations that were obtained, and these were preferably obtained at steady state. And so then the AUC was calculated using log linear methods, and then 
following uh, collection of each of these levels, we then input and calculated Bayesian one level and two level AUC. And that was using the Insight RX platform. At the end of the study we used, and it's pretty interesting how this came about, but Pearson's correlation and then clinical agreement to assess the overall agreement between methods. And then we actually used bland Altman plots to assess the mean difference and limit 95% limits of agreement to understand uh, sort of variability between methods. Which Katie, let me stop you there. Just as a uh, simple minded ID guy, <laughs> uh, hearing you explain that it, it sounds intimidating, but if, yes. if you're able, like uh, this, just for the listeners, this article is gonna be posted on our website and attached to the uh, uh, announcement. But looking at these charts, I, I actually understand what you're talking about. Like this, and, and you get a little bit more into it in your discussion as well as to as to what those particular outcomes are and quite frankly your outcome of clinical agreement is in my opinion you know the most useful does it actually change yeah. uh what you do what you're going to do are you going to adjust the dose or not based on the bayesian derived versus the, the linear kinetics and so that that is uh I think y'all did a very nice job of, of looking at that particular outcome and not, not just get looking at AUC and uh, yeah. correlation. Yeah, and honestly, I love that you say that because even from our standpoint, yeah. going through this, it was like, wow, how do we really compare and, and show readers these differences and what we're seeing? And we've got, we went back and forth a ton with, with the best way to do this. And ultimately... I mean, the Bland-Altman plots we ultimately went with just from the standpoint of technically, we're not trying to look at assigning one of these as a gold standard. And so in order to really be able to compare and contrast difference and variability, we needed a way to do that visually without assigning you know, a, a gold standard. Hmm. Uh, and so yeah, our ultimate goal was really one for us to understand the data, but then to also be able to relay that to the reader. And so I, I will say that verbally hearing it is not as impactful as probably looking at a lot of these, these uh, visuals. Well, no, that's a, that, that is a, that is certainly a point, a valid point. Uh, I, you know, I think a couple of things here, just hearing that uh, summary. First of all, you guys were looking into this and doing this in 2017, that, that's impressive to me. It shows a bit of ambition that I definitely don't have. Uh, and so uh, you guys are certainly leaders in this area. And, and this is part of why we want to have you on, uh, you know, as a lot of us try to look at it and kind of brace ourselves for how do we first, you know, train nurses to get the adequate or the right timing of two doses instead of one? How do we train physicians to look at these levels that are not necessarily troughs and you know never mind the nuances of whether or not we uh, use uh, Bayesian versus linear kinetics or two dose uh, Bayesian derived like you know the, these are things that are important uh, and I appreciate you guys uh, studying and reporting on but also I, I, we were also interested in hearing you know how how what was it like to implement uh, AUC monitoring in your hospital was, was it a very difficult ask like did you have a lot of uh obstacles or political obstacles or uh, uh, that's and i can i can definitely speak more to that and 
there were a lot of barriers that might have been different from our institution than others. But, you know, as you mentioned in 2017, it wasn't really a widely accepted practice. I think what really helped us was we had a lot of dedicated pharmacists who honestly, before we realized that AUC was gaining traction, we had identified that within our hospital, just dosing based on trap troughs, there was a ton of variability in practice among our pharmacists. And so we just subjectively felt like we probably weren't doing our best at providing patient-specific pharmacokinetic monitoring to our patients, which was likely leading to higher troughs than what we needed. And so our ID group and really some of our other clinical pharmacists were already starting to support the idea of at least getting two levels to do more patient-specific monitoring. And then when we realized AUC was gaining traction, um, we decided, well, maybe this is kind of the time. And we did start planning probably over a half a year in advance. I think we started planning in February of 2017, Mm -hmm. so uh, at least seven months before we went live. Fortunately, because we have such a widespread clinical pharmacy group and a lot of support from our physician colleagues, we didn't face a lot of barriers in terms of having the practice accepted. Uh, What we did really was we started with educating our pharmacy team since the majority of this work effort was going to fall to the pharmacists and then also worked with our ID physician colleagues to introduce them to the concept and just get some initial buy-in and really ended up getting some full support with that and then after that really started probably the more arduous process of looking at our current guideline and determining how to make AUC monitoring as easy as possible. Cause like you mentioned, um, you know, a lot of this can sound very confusing in terms of the equations and just monitoring everything correctly and trying to do it consistently and what populations. And so we had representatives from really every pharmacy specialty sit down at the table for, you know, a two month period and outline what the process was going to look like. So that was at least the introductory period. And then I can speak more to the implementation as well. Well, that, that's really fascinating to hear. I mean, what, what, you're, what you're alluding to, as I mentioned before we started recording, is that when I start looking at some of these kinetic equations that y'all use to come up with a dosing, I, my eyes start glossing over. And <laughs> I'm like, thankfully, I'm, I'm not a pharmacist because I, I can't understand this stuff, uh, even if I tried. And so, you know, we're very thankful for the work you do as clinical pharmacists. And I think you're explaining the, the, uh, the old adage, uh, never let a, uh, a drug shortage go to waste, never let an opportunity or, uh, you know, something that needs to change yes. go to waste. You, you seize the moment here and, and figure out how to do things better and not just try to get through it. Sounds like you guys have some very good political capital there and uh, good collaborative relationships, which I think are crucial for any intervention or implementation of something like this. Well, if I had uh, several of our programs on today, I'm sure we've, we could come up with a, a ton of questions to ask about how things went during the implementation process. But one thing, and, and we'll, I want to get back into the weeds of your results here in a second, but one thing I think we all are struggling with is is what goes into the decision process 
for you know, which calculator you're going to use. I mean, there's online calculators that are free. Mm -hmm. There's like really expensive calculators that integrate with your EMR and pull in the patient specific characteristics like inside RX or dose me RX or, and uh, there's an Epic calculator and, and then there's programs that develop their own Excel thing and global yes. RPH. And I mean, it's just uh, like, it's kind of intimidating for someone uh, like me to figure out which one do we do. And I don't even know how to, you know, how do we validate these? And so I, can you talk a little bit about process you guys went through to before you, before you decided you would do the, the linear kinetic? You know, it's in, you're exactly right. I think, especially when we start talking about like the linear log trapezoidal method and and you see the equation for it it's it's really confusing even for clinical pharmacists cuz you know a lot of our practice in some regards has moved away from you know just being focused on pharmacokinetic monitoring and so i think for us we actually utilize more simplistic uh, equations than even what is probably most published on which is that linear log trapezoidal method and so we have um, a protocol, our protocol and some other published literature that shows some of our general equations, but we actually went through a big debate on whether we were going to do the equations that were most published on or whether we were going to do these more simplistic PK equations. But what we did was we ultimately went with the more simplistic one because we felt like it was going to be easier for our pharmacist to follow, less room for error because you wouldn't have to multiply your number by the number of doses they got in that day. So we really tried to think about simplicity, but what it came down to honestly was us plugging in the two equations in Excel and modeling a bunch of different doses and just determining, well, were there many differences between the two ways? And ultimately what we found out was unless you were giving a dose of, you know, two grams Q6 hours, which is very uncommon, there really wasn't a lot of variability in the equations. And so we went with our um, more simplistic equations and then we actually ended up building uh, an Excel calculator around that. And we had a, a second year ID pharmacy resident who really helped to um, implement all of this. And then that allowed us as an institution to use a calculator consistently amongst the department. Cause as you mentioned, we tried not to have one for a while to get people to use the equations, but then what happens is people start going to, you know, online calculators and you don't always know what goes into them. Right. And so at least for us initially, we knew we didn't have the resources to buy into Bayesian yet. And we looked at a variety of different equations and ultimately went with what we thought were going to be the most simplistic for our pharmacist to implement. Yeah, that, well, that's that's good to hear your story. I mean, I think, you know, what what I take away from this story is each program is going to have their own unique resources, your own unique culture, and, and things available to them. And you know, not all of us are going to have a, a PGY two ID uh, resident to help us validate and develop an yes. spreadsheet, and and not all of us are going to have the financial resources to buy the nice Bayesian, pro Bayesian product. And so there are a lot of things out there that, that you can't just like pick one and go with it. You do have to think about it and test and 
validate and and test and revalidate and uh, and think about which is going to be best for your particular program. So it's not an easy it's a, it's not an easy task. Um, yeah. And I think that that insight is exactly right, that it is very institution specific, resource dependent. And I don't at all pretend to be gifted in pharmacokinetics, but, you know, we had a lot of other people who could provide some insight on that. And I think if there was anything that we learned, it was very much, it has to be a team-based approach. You have to get buy-in early and support early, and you cannot educate enough because especially at an institution our size, our, usually our biggest barrier is trying to reach everybody. And the reality is we didn't reach everybody, but we had reached enough people that if they hadn't heard, you know, Katie Wallace educate them, they had a pharmacist on their team that had received the education and could help them understand the new process. Mm-hmm. So we relied very heavily on all of our other resources as well. Oh yeah, I can only imagine rolling this out. Well, so let's get back to your uh, some some of the details of y'all's findings here. So y'all compared linear versus Bayesian two concentration and linear versus Bayesian one concentration, and then you compared Bayesian two versus one. Tell me a little bit about what you found, and and I can tell you what things you know I. I I'm taking away from this paper as well. Awesome. Well, ultimately, we we definitely noted um, very good or excellent agreement between linear and the Bayesian two concentration, as well as between Bayesian two concentration and Bayesian one concentration, which I think makes sense to everyone when we think about the uh, what what plays into Bayesian and the fact that they would have the same similar priors um, and provide similar estimates. The um, Bayesian two concentration when compared to the one concentration had a 95% limit of agreement somewhere between around, let's say 100 either direction. So negative 92 up to 113. And then a mean difference in AUC of negative 10.4. And then we looked at linear and Bayesian two concentration methods Overall, clinical agreement was 87.4%, and then the 95% limit of agreement went from negative 99 up to 76, with a mean difference of negative 11.5. So overall, those those two comparisons um, had decent agreement and not a ton of variability. Where did you see the most variability? (laughs) Yep, I can. When it occurred, which I agree is a very small amount. Oh, in those groups, where did we see it occur? Yeah. Very... For, the most, for the most part at those extremes of AUC. So as AUC exceeded 600, we did see a greater variability um, between the two methods. And so I, I think that was something we took away from it was in, in those circumstances where AUC was calculated and it was found to be super therapeutic. Um, that that tended to bring a little bit less agreement between the two methods. Yeah, again, which which makes sense. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, this is where, you know, my depth of understanding of Bayesian-derived calculations, uh, it, that's, that's where it stops. Because from what I understand, this is 
you know, we have a, a base population that these calculations are derived from and and that should change in in the in technically the way it's described to me it should be closer to reality and uh and so when you have uh the difficulty comes i see i'm i'm looking at one of your plots here when you compare the linear calculated auc to bayesian two level uh when the linear calculated above 600 so super therapeutic uh bayesian uh calculated to be in between four and 600 about 20 percent of the time and that that kind of puts pause like well are, are the, is that somebody if i'm using the linear calculation and I reduce that particular patient, am I taking them out of uh, AUC range? Or, and I think that's where your outcome of uh, the clinical agreement uh, kind of comes in. I, I, I'm not sure if that would necessarily warrant uh, a change that it takes you into sub-therapeutic range if you're, again, go back to the, the Bayesian 2 level. So I why you did find these variability that happened at the most extreme levels. I, I'm curious, how much do you guys actually think that matters? <laughs> Great question. Um, I, I think part of it too is like, and I, I personally also found the total match clinical agreement to be one of the most helpful ways to really hash out the differences and see what impact clinically these different methods would make. I think it's also important to kind of consider the fact that although it's categorized as therapeutic at the 400 to 600, I mean, it could be the difference of a five or 10, you know, mm -hmm. uh, one being 601 and the next one being 599. Mm -hmm. And technically they would be um, unmatched, but clinically, does that really change how you would manage the patient? Great point. Great point. Yeah. And we, I kind of have to add too, we just like Katie's alluding to, we had a lot of debate because one of our debates was, do we just share one specific finding and provide a lot of insight on that in terms of what we believe to be the conclusion? But the more we unpacked the results and analyzed it in different ways, the more we realized there was, you know, a bigger story to tell which is why you know, we chose to present the data in various ways, because if you look at the mean difference or the limits of agreement, you might think, well, the mean difference is really small. And even the limits of agreement are usually within 100 points in terms of AUC. So that seems insignificant. But then when you look at the, the clinical agreement, as Katie alluded to, it, it starts to challenge whether you think it is significant or not. Mm -hmm. um, and the more we discussed it and the more we realized it was more occurring at greater AUCs, we were able to kind of come to more definitive conclusion on our thoughts. But I just mentioned that because it, it really was um, an interesting debate when you looked at the data differently. Well, that, that is, uh, is, you know, almost too much information for me to handle as a clinician. Uh, and, and I know I kind of cut you off as you were describing, continue to, to describe the comparisons. Uh, but I, I also kind of have to like come back and for the, the forest for the trees type uh, scenario here, like our whole point of doing AUC monitoring is to reduce nephrotoxicity. 
uh, and so uh, without losing efficacy, like there's no yeah. necessarily benefit clinically for, you know, as far as efficacy goes for giving these AUC or for using AUC to come up with the doses. Uh, and so if that is my mindset, like, okay, my uh, institution wants to do this so that we can reduce our uh, acute kidney injury associated with vancomycin, uh, what, uh, what, what is the, what was, what's the best, uh, what did y'all find the best method to use? Are y'all using uh, two levels or are you doing one level uh, and, and plugging it in the, uh, what is it the, you know, finding the volume of distribution and coming up with a second level using these uh, calculations and, uh, or are you, are you using a product invasion derived stuff or did y'all, what did y'all end up doing? We are still currently using the, we use an Excel based and it's, it's just a linear equation. So we are still using that same method. And I think all of us agreed that the authors on this publication agree that that is what we would still consider to be, um, at least at this point in time for our institution, um, what we would stick with. And, and I, I, I want you to know, like when, when you talk about the whole benefit of this is to decrease nephrotoxicity, I, I really appreciate you mentioning that because I think sometimes in the grand scheme of talking through vancomycin, I know that a lot of the argument comes back and forth between efficacy and getting to therapeutic AUC fastest, um, but it's also important to also consider the safety perspective and the, isn't this why we shifted to AUC monitoring to reduce nephrotoxicity? Um, and I think when we look at the comparison of the methods, there was some difference in terms of, and you, you talked about it earlier with when one shows an AUC that was super therapeutic, the other was showing an AUC or estimated an AUC that was therapeutic. And so you get into this realm of if one is always resulting in an underestimation of AUC, does that put the patient at greater risk for AKI? And I think that was something we went back and forth quite a bit debating. Um, and I think that was one of our greatest concerns with the one level Bayesian right. based off of what we saw was that oftentimes the estimated AUC and it had the greatest frequency, I guess, for which it would say AUC was therapeutic. Um, but then when you looked at let's just say Bayesian two level, 15% of those patients actually had an estimated AUC greater than 600. Yeah. Well, and I think, go oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, I think the, uh, the AKI principle too, you know, I, I feel like one of our biggest benefits at the institution that we like AUC for is just what you said, which is we often, you know, it, assuming that you can use the, the same total daily dose based on what AUC you're trying to achieve, Many times we will pick a regimen that's going to give us the lowest uh, trough. And so if I have a regimen that is the same total daily dose, but um, one dose, it, one regimen is going to give me, you know, a, a trough of 20 versus one's going to give us a trough of 10. We very much like to, to look at the one or use the one that's going to give us a trough of 10 mm -hmm. for exactly what you said, which is kind of prioritizing prevention of AKI predominantly for sure. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a, that's a, that's an important concept to remember here. I, 
um, my last point, and then I want to give you guys the last word uh, that I want to bring up with all this. I kind of joked when this first kind of came out and hospitals were asking us to help. Uh, I, I said, well, why don't you just ask the physicians to do their own AUC monitoring for the vancomycin? <laughs> And I guarantee vancomycin use would go way down. And so, <laughs> yep. I, you know, there's, there is still a ton of overutilization of empiric vancomycin. And, and so we, we tend to uh, put our stress points on how do we get you from, first of all, ordering the vanc, keep you from ordering the vanc to begin with. And then if you do get them off before we actually have to consider using AUC monitoring. Yeah. And so that the, the only patients that continue to, to need VANC are the ones that actually need it for an invasive MRSA infection or something like that. And so uh, really give some of the clinical pharmacists time back who are having to actually come up with all these calculations. But uh, look, guys, I, I've had a, a blast here talking with you all. I really appreciate you coming on. Do you have any last comments uh, about this? Um, yeah, I think my kind of my last comments with the, with this would really be what we were touching on earlier, which is, you know, just determining what is most feasible for your institution. And, you know, I think for us, when we initially embarked on this, we were ex very intimidated in terms of the implementation. But really, you know, once we got buy in and just kind of had planned further out in advance, I think I'm more guilty of just trying to do things quickly. If you do it, pretty slow and have support, um, it really wasn't too difficult. And I think we quickly got buy-in once people recognized kind of the benefits of it. Uh, but I also think, you know, another important point that probably we didn't mention is when we did get to utilize the, the InsideRx platform, that was our first experience with Bayesian software. Hmm. And so if you are a hospital that can get Bayesian software fairly easily. I don't know, you know, if that's very easy for many institutions. I will say that one of the big benefits of it is it can integrate with your current, you know, electronic medical record and make it so that you don't really have to do a lot of manual work. It will take a lot of the information for you, their daily creatinines, et cetera, and then, um, you know, tell you and allow you to pick what regimen is most optimal. And so I mentioned that because when I, we first went into this project, I thought the main benefit of Bayesian was just its ability to predict or change based on population or patient specific data. But I think another thing to consider is if you don't have a ton of resources, but you do have buy-in and could get Bayesian software, it might actually be easier because it does integrate with your health record. But for us, we have a large population of clinical pharmacists. This was the most feasible for us. And mm -hmm. so that's why we did it. Yeah, that's a great point. Is it, is it more error proof, the software? I, I would say there's pros and cons to both. The pro mm -hmm. of doing it yourself would be, I think, you know, and you've probably heard this, you know, if a patient's volume of distribution is ex not normal, um, yeah. we try to question that and we will ask questions about if was the level drawn correctly, was it not drawn correctly? And Bayesian may not do that, although it will often flag you if there's a parameter that seems abnormal. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas, of course, you know, having the computer system with Bayesian, 
you are going to eliminate some human error if it's calculated wrong or something's typed in wrong to an equation because it, it does all that for you. Mm-hmm. So I think there's probably barriers to both. Yeah. Well, that's very helpful. How about you, Katie? Do you have any last words? So I think the only thing I would say kind of at the conclusion of this is that we hope what readers would take away from the publication is simply an understanding of what the pros and cons may be of each or how to even examine the differences between the different methods. And then exactly as Katie mentioned, um, then having the knowledge to select what method would be most appropriate for their institution. Um, but I, you alluded to this earlier. I mean, for patients who really do warrant AUC monitoring, it's going to be those ones who have serious infections who are requiring longer therapy. Um, and from that standpoint, doing what's best for the patient would be through monitoring of AUC. And that's why we feel so passionate about it and why we want to share this knowledge um, and share this data that we have with others. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a great uh, way to think about any study is you got a story to tell. So I really appreciate y'all sharing your story and, and you know, the thought that you put into this. Yeah. Uh, this will wrap up our Dayson Digest for February 25th, 2022. Uh, my name is Schaefer Spires, and I am here with Katie Olney and Katie Wallace from University of Kentucky Healthcare. And uh, please uh, tune back in for, uh, we will have a new podcast in two more weeks. We try to do them every two weeks. And that will be a wrap. 